0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a terrific and transformational life. Yesterday, I was listening to a really good audiobook. It's called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, and it's about the friendship and professional collaboration of the two Israeli psychologists who went on to create the field of behavioral economics. Uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And one of the things that really struck me was how they arrived at the concept of availability bias. And availability bias simply means that we judge the likelihood of things by what comes vividly to our minds. So for example, if we were asked, what is the chance that you'll be in a car crash today? It might be lower than if we had seeing a car crash by the side of the road. Just seeing it brings it up in our mind and makes us drive more carefully and think that it's a much more common occurrence than it is. So anytime that there is something that's sort of vivid or unusual or top of mind, we tend to worry about that more. And you can certainly see this around things like, should we should we be more worried about terrorism or heart attacks, right? Will we see the terrorism on the TV, but the heart attack isn't really, you know, front and center for most people unless you work as uh, EMT or in an emergency room. You know, they're much more private, silent events, and we don't give them the same probability in terms of our attempts to prevent them. So why am I talking about this today? Because it's a good, It's a, one of the reasons that I am having people like today's guest, Anthony Masiello on the podcast. People who have turned their lives around through plant-based nutrition and through running, through, uh, you know, vigorous physical movement through space. And because we, we think this is impossible. If you just read the New York Times and you read about the biggest loser and you read about how hard it is for people to lose weight and keep it off, and we don't really see people like this, there's a tendency in our society to think, well, that doesn't happen. And there's plenty of evidence that people can marshal to say, well, it's genetic. And once you're, you know... Proven to be obese or prone to overweight, it's almost impossible. There's not enough hours in the day to exercise as much as you need to do, so you just have to deal with it. And, of course, we know that that's simply untrue, that they're simply using very blunt tools. They're trying to chop down a a tree with a spaghetti noodle instead of a a sharpened axe. And when we have the tools of plant-based nutrition especially and a commitment to bipedal locomotion at whatever speed – and intensity you can manage in this moment that the pounds fall off. And so part of my mission in this podcast is to show you so many stories of people who are crushing the availability bias in their own families, their own communities, their own workplaces, where they by being such vivid examples of what's possible that the public at large begins to shift. And it's thinking about, well, how likely it is that I could take off 100 pounds, 200 pounds, and keep it off when there's almost no vivid examples of this in my life. Well, the people that I'm talking to and featuring on this podcast are those vivid examples. And so I'd love for this podcast to just kind of be this compendium of these vivid examples, uh, much like uh, Jason Cohen's Big Change, the film, is going to do when it comes out, hopefully in the coming year. So a little bit about Anthony. We met at Leadville when we were both running um, the uh, the marathon and heavy half. Um, he has been plant-based for many years. So when I met him, it didn't occur to me that he'd ever been overweight. He's, you know, six foot three. He's an accomplished runner. He's very engaging and funny. And he's just the sort of regular guy that you would never have guessed was, you know, really close to death's door in his early 30s. So his story of growing up being the fat kid, having a family and feeling like he was letting them down because he wasn't able to participate the way he wanted in their lives, and the simple and powerful things he did to turn himself around. These are common themes, and Anthony gives them a spin all his own. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, Anthony Massiello, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you, Howard. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here.
0: I'm super happy to have you. Why don't you start out by telling folks a little bit about who you are and, and what you do?
1: So, my name is Anthony Masiello, as, as you said. I live in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, with my wife and two boys. They're ages 11 and 13. And, um, yeah, that that's about it.
0: Okay. And you do, like, health stuff. I see you on Facebook. You're 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 instigating things you're working with different people tell tell us a little bit about the work you do
1: yeah so i do as as much as i can so i'm sure we'll get we're going to get into the whole story but basically since reclaiming my own health um and realizing what it's done for my life i look for every opportunity that i can find to help other people to do the same so i focus on a couple of different things i get to work with a couple of local plant-based physicians and um I get to share my story to inspire people. I also get to help coach people through change. Um, my biggest area of focus is I don't really want to tell people what to do. I feel like there were so many experts in this field who have all of that really figured out. What I really want to help people to figure out is why should they make this change, like really to find a deep reason, like really something that's important to them that's going to help them to be able to make the change, and then kind of skip the what to do, and get right into how to do it in a very practical sense. So myself, like you know, we'll go into the whole story, but I've been eating a purely plant-based diet for over 12 years now, and it wasn't always easy, and it wasn't always hard either. You know, I've figured out how to do it while eating in with my family, while traveling with friends who are not plant-based or family who's not plant-based, and doing all these things. So really taking all this kind of accumulated experience and all of the reading. I mean, I'm addicted to reading books. So, uh, and all the reading that I've done in order to just kind of help people to apply it um, in their own lives.
0: Gotcha. So, so I think it'd be useful now to, uh, to go into your story because clearly this isn't stuff. I mean, it is stuff that people could get from a book or a course, you know, take, spend 5,000 bucks, become a health coach and then go do it. But this, this grows directly out of your own, Odyssey. So why don't you t- take us back? Like let's yeah. let's let's go back to childhood. Let's do it. Like, were you when you were I guess overweight? Yes. Right. And so when when, was, when did that happen?
1: I was you know for all practical purposes I was always overweight. Um, I do know specifically that it was between the fourth and fifth grades. So I spent the school years in North Carolina living with my mom, and I spent the summers in New Jersey staying with my dad. And I can look at pictures and I can see myself. And in the fourth grade, I look like a regular healthy weight um, person. And then in the fifth grade, I remember going back to school. And like the way my summer breaks timed out, like we literally would leave North Carolina the day after school got out and we would come back like the day before school started. So I, I came back to North Carolina. I went to school the next day and my my friend, his name was Woody, he said to me, he goes, Anthony, how, how'd you get so fat? Like, because something happened. And like, all of a sudden, I went from being, like, normal, healthy weight to being big. Now, he said that to me, and I kind of owned it. I took it on, but it's a little bit sad to me because now I look back, and I wasn't humongous <laughs> when I started the fifth grade. You know, I don't know how much weight I could have gained in those two months, but there was definitely more weight than more than the average person in the early 80s in the you know in the fourth grade right there were most people were of a at least most kids back then were of a of a healthy weight so i was big but i kind of really took it and not just from what he said but then from going through school and from continuing so i basically grew up identifying myself as like the fat kid, or, or maybe in my school, there were two of us at the time, you know, they like, and, and it became almost like a, a self conscious way of viewing myself through growing up. And that really drove a lot of what I, you know, I guess it drove a lot about what I thought of myself. And it also drove my actions and the way I handle myself in, in different kind of social situations. You know, I wasn't the one with the confidence who would go out and try to, um, you know, if I was roller skating at the time, cause that's what else I was doing in the, in the early eighties. Like I wouldn't be the one to go out and just ask any girl to go kind of do a couple skate with me, um, around, around the rink because I had this kind of self-consciousness about me. So that's, wh- that's where I started at an so early can, age.
0: Yeah. Can, I'm curious about that. So this was like your, your friend, Woody, was there, I mean, what, did it feel like insulting or a put down or was it kind of like, okay, here's my new identity. Here's how I fit in. Here's how I understand my place in the social situation. Like, was Woody still a friend? Did you still,
1: like, yeah, was Woody, being the fat Woody kid a, a problem? No. So it never was a problem. And I don't believe Woody meant it in a bad way at all. You know, he was, you know, kids at that age, are just very matter of fact. At least they were, my friends were. And it's like, okay, you know, you see something, you say something about it. And it's not like, it wasn't really done in a, in a picking way. It wasn't really done to call me out. Cause it was a question that he had for me, you know, what, what happened? It, so that's at least how I took it more. And I never really got defensive about it or anything like that. I just kind of I just, I guess, I just kind of rolled with it, and I'm, and you know, I'm probably oversimplifying it. I don't know exactly when all these things happened, but I do remember later, like in the sixth and seventh grade, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask girls to go, you know, and do do the couple skating thing at the at the roller rink because I just assumed that they wouldn't want to do that. You know, looking back, it's actually pretty sad. You know, you know, like it kind of bums me out because my life could have been very different if I would have been one of these people who were big and overweight and kind of embracing that and not approaching it from a perspective of, um, like, uh, I guess who people who are approaching it with a more confident way, like some people who are big, they feel like they own the room, right? Because they're bigger than everyone else. They're larger than life and they have no issue with it. And I was kind of the opposite. I was almost trying to mask it or to hide it. And I think that kind of pushed me into myself instead, instead of putting me out there. So it did, um, affect my life in that way. Now, I don't think I grew up an unhappy person, but I did kind of have these parameters and these are the parameters that I kind of chose to live between. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, don't take this the wrong way, but how'd you get so fat?
1: <laughs> I have no idea, <laughs> that's, like the, that's, that's the question. You know, the I, I really, really don't know. I, I always did appreciate food You know, coming from North Carolina and and coming up to New Jersey, there were a lot of things around food that I really enjoyed here. For example, in North Carolina, we lived in a, a, like a subdivision and in order to get anywhere, you had to be driven or someone had to pick you up, right? So any food I could get on my own there was whatever we had in the fridge, which my mom always stocked the fridge with healthy food and whatever I can make for myself. In New Jersey, now my dad lives in town and I could walk to like it's New Jersey. I could work to walk to four or five pizzerias. Like uh-huh. even at that you know even that So what, at that what town age. is this? This is Clinton, New Jersey. It's a 1 okay. square mile town. It's very rural. You know, I know you and I have talked about it, but for for anyone listening, it's small, but in a 1 square t- square mile town in New Jersey, you've got at least three or four pizza places. And there are sidewalks everywhere. We definitely didn't have that in North Carolina, you know, in the in the subdivision. So it was not any issue for for us to go out like my brother and I to leave the house, go meet up with friends and be gone for, you know, four or five or six hours, including, you know, picking up our own lunch. And basically, I think it kind of put the control of what I was eating into my hands, maybe before I was not really before I was ready for it. But I guess it let me kind of express my tendencies and to want to kind of overeat or maybe to find some comfort in food or to really just enjoy the taste of that gooey cheese and the grease dripping off the pizza while playing pinball you know in the in the pizzeria like it was cool yeah so
0: So, you i guess your mom stayed in north carolina right so was she was she surprised and shocked to see you she
1: never said anything um she didn't and i don't know if she noticed it you know, the the way Woody noticed it or if he, she chose not to say anything, you know, we didn't have that conversation. But going on, once she realized it was an issue for me, you know, we would talk about what to do. But the the truth is, I don't think she ever had a weight problem. So I don't think she really knew how to deal with it um, or, or how to really help me. And we would go to the doctor and the doctor would say, you should try to lose some weight. But like, you know, th- that's it. <laughs> that, that's all we huh. did. So so I would try little things like and now we're going on, right? We're going on from like four, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, probably, you know, ninth grades, you know, and and she would help me, you know what we would we would um she would get me the lean cuisines, right? Instead of like 'cause I would I would love those things. But when she wasn't around, I would probably eat two of them. You know, so yeah. so she tried to help and it was probably the only attempt we really had at that age was portion control. And there were times where I would lose a little bit of weight, and and it would stay off for a little while, and then it would just kind of come back. And I probably graduated high school. I'm six foot four, and I, I must have been close to that when I graduated high school if I wasn't already all of it. And then I probably graduated high school around two hundred and eighty or two hundred and ninety pounds, which was big, but um,
0: yeah, not... but that's the, that's like football big. That's not
1: yeah. Except that I never played sports, I never exercised, I never lifted weights, so so mine was uh, kind of jelly big. I I was active. I did use the skateboard. I mentioned roller skating. I would ride my you know my BMX bike all around, uh, stuff like that. So I was active, but um, I wasn't really getting exercise. Not like somebody who played like a team sport or so, or something like that would do. And I was not definitely not spending any time in the gym or trying to lift weights or. Or be strong that way. But you're right, it wasn't obese, it was
0: big. So you said at the beginning that your big thing now is to help people figure out their why, yeah. why they should make that change. So far, I haven't heard any why from yeah, so you. It only, seems like
1: the strongest why I've had, I had back then was because I wanted to lose weight, or maybe because I wanted to fit in better in a social situation. But it wasn't really very strong like I had a lot of friends and I fit in well in 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 my social situation. You know, people were were used to me. It was, you know, I I had a nice uh a nice group of friends,
0: close group. Yeah, of I, friends. you know, I I met you in per- in person. You're very gregarious. So I'm I'm imagining you. you didn't sort of invent that persona in the last 12 years. So it sounds it sounds like there wasn't there was a cost a little bit of a sort of social cost, but you seemed like well adjusted, happy active in your way. So like, what happened yeah, after so, that? So
1: then after that, so then when I graduated from high school in North Carolina, then I moved up and I stayed with my dad and then I, I was going to school locally here in New Jersey. Then, and, um, and then I decided in, now we're going into the nineties um, in 1994. I wasn't feeling good. I wasn't actually on a pretty good path. By this time now I was drinking alcohol and I was talking to my mom on the phone one day. I was just talking to my mom. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm not really feeling that good. Wait again. And she doesn't even remember this, but in January of 1994, she told me, she said, well, why don't you just try giving up meat and alcohol for a little while and see what happens? She said, just try it for like three months. And I remember I had a bunch of beer and it was my friend's birthday on January 24th. So we we ended up drinking all that beer on his birthday, January 24th. And and um, then the next day I stopped and I just had told my friends, you know, I just turned 21 at that point, you know, maybe six months earlier. So all my friends were now shifting from like house parties and underage drinking to being able to actually go into bars and drink out, you know, in more social situations but I still hung out with everyone, but I just didn't drink. And the plan was I was gonna do this for three or four months. And and some of my friends were just waiting. They're like, Oh, when are you gonna start drinking again? You know, it, it was it was funny like that. But but fast going fast forward, I still actually haven't had a drink since that point in time. But what that did for me, and being a vegetarian in the early nineties, pretty much the only thing I would eat would be vegetable stir fry. And I actually lost a lot of Excuse me, I lost a lot of weight. I was probably over three hundred pounds, maybe maybe closer to like three twenty five or so when I started that, and then I lost weight pretty quickly because a vegetarian in the early nineties who wasn't in some you know some big city or some progressive area, like I really didn't have any choice on how to eat out. I just had to take care of myself and eat at home, so I was eating salads and I was eating stir fries you know still with oil and things like that. I didn't know everything. But um, but I lost some weight, and I probably got back down to that 280 or so. And actually, that felt really good for me. And then as, as I continued then, I, um, I went away to school. By this time, I moved to Baltimore, Maryland. And then I somehow, slowly but surely, through finishing um, college and then getting a sit-down job, and then having more money in my pocket where I could actually go out to eat. And by this time, we're living in um, Bethesda, Maryland. And I, w- I was working just outside of Washington, D.C. And, and um, my weight was really climbing. You know, I moved in. My wife, my girlfriend at the time, who I'm married, who's my wife now, she moved in with me um, we were doing more things together, but it was more kind of couple things. It wasn't like going out and going skateboarding for the afternoon or going on long, like mountain bike rides and stuff like that. So my weight slowly started creeping back up. I also learned how to eat very unhealthy as a vegetarian. And, like, you know, we would get Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And uh,
0: so, well, yeah. if for, in your mind, what was the purpose of being vegetarian? Was it a lifestyle or an ethical decision or just a, a hack that your mom told you that worked?
1: She just said. She said, try to do that and see if it makes you feel better and see if you lose any weight. And really, that's all it was. It wasn't any more thought to it than that. But but I stayed. You know, I never went back. But I, what I did was I learned how to be a junk food vegetarian. So so again, I had my parameters. But I realized that Ben and Jerry's ice cream, grilled cheese sandwiches, you know down in maryland i was now getting papa john's pizza and they had this like little cup of this garlic butter sauce or something that you could pour all over the pizza and i would get extra Mm -hmm. of that you know but my weight really jumped
0: up but that's so uh, interesting because like you became a vegetarian for just a totally utilitarian purpose and then you just stuck with the definition even though it wasn't working and you weren't you weren't working it
1: exactly but but (laughs) but but yeah, it's weird. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of reflecting and I do a lot of trying to figure out how my path worked out. And now I do that, you know, half because I just want to understand myself better. And then the other half is so that maybe I can find some thread in here that would help, help other people. But I did. I just continued to be a, a vegetarian, but I was eating French fries and, and pizza and a lot of junk food that happened to just not contain meat.
0: Yeah, it's inter- I mean, it's interesting that, like, there doesn't have to be a conscious reason for it. Like, it's, you know, yeah. that's like one of the things that, that I've discovered is that most of us just do what we do and we know who we are by just looking at what we do. And there's no more thought that goes into it than that.
1: Right. Well, you know, there might have been something to it. I was probably also afraid that if I did start reintroducing me or if I did start start reintroducing alcohol, that I would even get worse, mm. you know, because I, I had something in my mind that made me think that I lost weight going vegetarian. So now what if I start re, you know, there was no reason, I guess, to reintroduce meat or something that would potentially maybe even make me worse off than I already was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Gotcha. I think there was probably some of that there.
0: So where, where did it go from there? You you, you were so, down to so 280 then, and then do you know how, how heavy you got ultimately? So
1: I was in well into the 300 pounds and then we moved back to New Jersey because my wife wanted to come back because she had siblings in the area. Everyone was having kids and we wanted to start a family. So we moved back to New Jersey and um, we had our first son and then we had our, our second, she was pregnant with our second son and this was my this was my kind of catalyst for change or whatever. And then I applied for a life insurance policy. So when the first, when she was pregnant with my first son, I applied for like a a 20 year term life insurance policy and I got it, but I was in kind of a high risk category. I forget what it was called, which just basically meant I had to pay about five times as much per month as my wife did for the same amount of coverage. And then, and so that was a bummer, but again, that wasn't like really a red flag. I'm like, Oh, well, we just have to, you know, more money. But then when I went for, when I pregnant with the second son and I went to get more insurance, um, I actually got the letter back that said I was denied. And, and, you know, I went to school for computer science and I worked with kind of data informatics. And I know that how an insurance company decides who's insurable and who's not, you know, they basically punch in all the parameters that they collect from my health records. And this computer tells them, If this person is worth insuring or not, or in my mind at that time, when I'm reading this letter, the computer, what the computer is really saying is, is this person going to live for 20 years or not? And Mm -hmm. to hear that the computer came back and said, no, that was a shock to me. You know, I wasn't expecting to get into any, you know, low premium category, but I wasn't expecting to at age 33 to be told that I wasn't going to make it to 53 or that I wasn't going to see my unborn child's 20th birthday, you know, or, or, you know, see them get much beyond high school. Like that was really scary.
0: And at that point, did you know uh, your numbers beyond weight, whether, you know, cholesterol or blood pressure?
1: So it was a little bit of everything at that point. So by that point, I was 360 pounds. That's the easy one. I had a 54-inch waist, and I believe that's a factor that they wanted to know as well. Um, how much of that probably that I'm carrying is belly fat versus versus muscle or something else. And then um, I was on medicine for high blood pressure. And I had been talking to my doctors trying to say, I don't really want to go on medicine. But she kind of told me, like, look, the only way you're going to be able to help yourself out is to, is to start going on medicine. So I was on blood pressure medicine for probably about two years. Um, I also went for a sleep study. And I was diagnosed with sleep apnea, but I decided not to buy the machine that you, you know, that the mask yeah. thing that you that you sleep with. I think both of those were red flags: the fact that I had sleep apnea, and the fact that I did not buy the, mm. you know, go for the machine. And um, I, we were also, my doctor was trying to figure out how to help me get rid of or not have as many migraine headaches. I would get these migraine headaches, the kind that would just kind of stop my day. And all I could really do would be to go lay in a dark room. Like no medicine would really help me and stuff like that. So that was also in my records. So by the time all of my cholesterol was borderline high, is what they were calling it, it was probably like 216 or something like that. So it wasn't to the point where my doctor was insisting on medicine. But again, I think that's probably played in. By the time you add up all of these things, Uh, From the insurance company perspective, it just didn't look good.
0: So you said that was the catalyst for your change.
1: Yeah. So the biggest thing that that did was that was like the wake up call. That was like the slap in the face. Like that made me go back and really look, okay, what is my life really like? Like, what is this thing? You know, I thought I was just a big guy at six, four and 360 pounds. You know, I, I even joked I called myself a giant. I said, look, I'm just a giant. Yeah, I'm twice as wide as you and I'm twice as tall as you. You know, like uh, I could say those things to friends and kind, of, and kind of justify it a little bit. But this wasn't really something that I could shrug off. And when I looked at it, you know, there were a lot of things that I couldn't do. Like, um, you know, when I would be in a situation where the only option was to sit in an armchair, you know, in, in some kind of a meeting room or something like that. I was thinking to myself, you know, I literally have to go into these rooms and push myself down into this seat. And I sit there like in pain, not excruciating pain, but in pain and uncomfortable until I can basically wedge myself out and leave the room. Um, When I was flying, I was traveling a bit at the time by myself And when I would walk down the aisle of the airplane, I would feel really bad for whoever ended up being next to me on either side. And if I was in a middle seat, like I got to feel bad for two people, you know, and I was just so conscious of that. And I would sit and I would cross my arms and I would try not to overflow onto their seats, but it was impossible. And even when the flight attendant would do the little demonstration with the seatbelt, you know, they had that little tiny seatbelt. Now it's all on video, but, but the flight attendant used to hold it up and do the demonstration, then I would have to call over the flight attendant and ask if I could borrow that to extend the seatbelt just so that I could buckle up uh, Mm -hmm. for the flight. So I started looking at it and realizing all of these things. And then really the biggest moment was in um, maybe, I don't know if it was a month or so, it was sometime after the insurance company had denied me and I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, my wife and I took my son to the local carnival that comes to town and, you know, they had just these little rides that kind of fold up off the back of these trucks or that they lay out in the parking lot of a, Mm -hmm. of a, a church in this case. And they, they set up the carnival for a few days. So we're new parents. My son is about 18 months old and we took him to the carnival for the first time. You know, we're brand new parents. We had never taken him. Uh, he'd never been anywhere like this before. And we were. So this walking. is like
0: two two thousand six, two thousand five. That
1: was late two thousand five.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: okay. late, it, it was mid to late two thousand and five. Yeah, and we're we're walking around, and um, he sees the train ride, you know, and he thinks it's Thomas because he we used to watch Thomas the Train on TV, and he had the little wooden Thomas the Train toys with the battery, and like he, you know, he was kind of a little bit into the trains, and he sees the train ride, and so he starts pointing at it, and he's getting excited, and he starts squirming, right? So we walk towards the train ride, and then just as naturally as anything else, when we get close, I go to pull him from my chest to hand him to my wife. But when I, when I do that, he tugs on my shirt. Like, to me, he wanted to stay with me, and he wanted me to take him on the ride. But there was no way that I would ever be able to fit on this train, I mean it was tiny, it wasn't even an adult ride. I I would it's debatable if I fit on an adult ride. I'm never gonna fit on one of these kiddie rides. So I take my son and I hand him to my wife, and um you know, he he squirms a little bit or whatever, but then he still realizes he's going on the train. So he probably just forgets that I'm you know, that I'm there at all because my wife is now they're handing tickets. But what happened after they handed the tickets and they went through the gate, the attendant looked at me and he said you so you're going to have to go stand and wait over here. And he, he told me to go around and I walked around and I'm literally standing behind a metal gate. And my wife and son, my pregnant wife and son are riding around on this train and they're giggling and they're laughing and they're pointing at the lights or, you know, whatever they're doing, they're having an obvious good time. And I'm locked out, you know, as a, as a new father, I'm like an observer. I'm not even being able to participate in this activity that's bringing him so much joy. And uh, I'm standing behind this gate and I'm thinking to myself and I'm going, you know, is this really the kind of father that I'm going to be? Like, is this what my future is going to look like? And, and then on top of that, is this the kind of husband that I am? You know, is this, is this what parenthood is going to be white, like for me and my wife? You know, it's only going to get more involved from here. And the kid's 18 months old; he almost doesn't care what he does. But what happens when he's four and five and six and 10 or 15? Like, am am I really just going to be the one that kind of waits on the side all the time, or am I going to be able to be an active father and an active husband and, and part of these these people's lives? And 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 I think that was really my moment where I knew that I had to do something, and almost at any cost. So, you know, going back to talking about the why, now I really have a purpose. You know, I'm bringing two lives into this world, and I've made this lifelong commitment to this woman who I who I absolutely love, and and um, I didn't feel like I was able to kind of um, hold up my side of those deals. Mm. So I didn't know what to do. You know, if I knew what to do, it wouldn't have been an issue. But I said, you know, it was getting towards the end of the year. I said, okay, I'm going to start January 2005. I mean, January of 2006. I'm going to set a New Year's resolution. And I I set a New Year's resolution. I said, I'm going to lose 50 pounds in 2006. And the only step that I thought I could do to get started, the only thing I can think of you know, Atkins diets and things like that were very popular at the time, but I was already vegetarian. And, (laughs) and for something like that, didn't seem like it was a matchup for me. So I said, okay, no more soda, no more sweets. The soda wasn't a big deal. I didn't drink a lot of uh, soda, but the sweets were, you know, I, I would have, we wouldn't buy a lot of cookies, but if we were ever out, you know, I would, I would have something. We bought a lot of ice cream. I was eating that stuff. So, so I cut that out. And I went about three months and uh, I had no soda. I had no sweets and I was trying to keep myself hungry all the time. I was just trying to never fill myself up. And after the three months, um, I hadn't lost a single pound. Like it nothing was working. And and that was like a huge, that was another huge blow for me. That was a, a bummer. I'm like, okay, this this doesn't work. I have to figure this out. What am I going to do? So then I just started scouring the internet for anything that I could find that would help me to be able to lose weight. And um, that's when I found Joel Furman's book, Eat to Live. Um, I just found it on Amazon and I read like the concept and it said, eat a whole bunch of fruits and vegetables and almost nothing else. And uh, But then I read the comments that people made and there were tons of comments, even at this time, you know, even in very early two thousand and six, like, this works, it's amazing. I feel better than ever, blah, blah, blah. My this is fixed. My that is fixed. You know, people were were putting a lot of comments on there. So Mm -hmm. I bought the book and I read it and I started right away.
0: And did you know that he was your neighbor?
1: No. I didn't know. I so I bought Eat to Live and I read the entire book and I started making the changes and I started losing weight. And at some point, what I used to do is I used to keep the book around because in that first edition, and I don't know if it's in the more recent edition or not, the, the last maybe 50 or so pages or, or 20 pages were all frequently asked questions. And I just used to reread those all the time. Like someone would ask a question, he would give a long answer. Someone asked a question, he would give a long answer. And then one time I actually flipped it over and I read the back cover, which was about the author. And it said Joel Furman. He said he, he lives with his family in Flemington, New Jersey, which I'm going to point that way. is about eight miles that way. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really funny, and I thought that was cool. But um, but I never went to try to go see him. You know, I, I said I'm going to do this, and uh, I continued working with my doctor. And by the time, well, so I started changing the way I eat like aggressively. Um, I did not go – like I never followed – he has in there a six-week plan where he says, okay, this is what you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I never went that route. I never went like what someone would describe as cold turkey. I just really got the concept that I need to eat a ton of fruits and vegetables and almost nothing else. So I started just adding a lot of fruit. Like I wouldn't have a lunch until I had a full entree size size salad first. Um, I typically would not even eat breakfast. I would just have coffee. But I started having like, you know, four or five servings of fruit for breakfast. You know, I just started really concentrating on loading in the the fruits and vegetables and just kind of letting that crowd out other stuff. And it worked, it worked quick. By the time my son was born, which was, I went back and looked at the dates. It was about three months after I purchased Eat to Live on Amazon. And, um, And I had lost 30 pounds in three months.
0: Yeah, so that's that's uh, especially after your three months of stasis. That was pretty good proof.
1: Yeah, that that was amazing. And I didn't try to analyze it, which I typically, you know, which sometimes I will get myself into problems. You know, that could have been basically just waiting for the startup time. Maybe I would have started to lose weight anyway. Maybe I just needed a couple months before it started falling off. But I didn't do it. I just gave all the credit for this to what I had read in that book. And what that did for me is it just helped me um, to start, you know, doing more and more and more, just getting cleaner and cleaner, a little more true to uh, what the recommendations were, and really to continue cutting out other stuff. So cutting out more bread, cutting out the last bits of cheese that I was eating, you know, things like that. And um, so
0: so the way you describe it is you made a decision and then you made it happen was it that easy for you? Because I know a lot of people make the decision, especially these days when there's so much available on the internet and so many groups, and then people still spend years not living up to what they know they should do.
1: Yeah, so once I lost those first 30 pounds, it was pretty easy for me to continue because that, that made me believe and understand that this was working and that this was getting me what I wanted. And I after that initial drop, I lost eight pounds a month every single month, and that became a goal of mine. I originally said 50 pounds for the year because I thought it would be reasonable to try to lose um, five pounds a month, and then I gave myself two months kind of wiggle room. You know, five pounds a month would have been 60. I said 50. I should be able to lose five pounds a month, but I lost that initial 30, you know, three months into the year, and then I, I was losing eight pounds a month. And I do remember while this was happening, if there was a month where I was a little bit light, I would just eat salads for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, for the last three or four um, days of the month. And then I would sure enough, I would hit my eight pounds. And other months I would lose the eight pounds right in the beginning, and then maybe it would just kinda kinda float around. But after I kind of got into that mode, I just made sure I hit eight pounds a month, every every month. And and it did feel easy. Like, it literally felt like the weight was just coming off. Like, it wasn't a constant effort. I knew what I had to do, and I was just doing it. And by the end of that first year, I lost 90 pounds. Um, Wow. I lost 90 pounds. I had been going back. My doctor started saying that I needed to come and see her every two weeks, and she ramped me off my medication. She really wanted to help me track my progress. I feel so lucky that I didn't have one of these doctors who says, oh, you're crazy. That's never going to work. She never did that. She's like, okay, well, let's do it. This is what we need to do in order to find out this is going to work. You know, I want to see you here. Um, She had me taking my blood pressure um, three and four times a day, and she gave me these worksheets so that I could just fill them out so that she would have a lot more data than just what happened when I walked into her office so that she could kind of responsibly, I guess, figure out what to do with with my medication as she ran me down, but she got me off my medication. And, um, and by the end of the year, after losing 90 pounds, I just, I was feeling amazing. Um, I, and, uh, it was the end of the year. So then I wanted to set another new year's resolution. And this this is a, a good point. So I lost this first 90 pounds without doing an ounce of exercise. So I literally, I never went for a walk around the block. I never stood on the treadmill and went for a walk. I just, I just went about my routine. You know, we had a toddler and a newborn at home, so it was a busy year for us. We weren't really looking for extra time, but um, my wife was always a runner. And even the year before we got married, you know, I got to go and watch her run the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. And again, it's another, when I look back, it's another one of those kind of sideline moments for me where I would take her to these 5Ks, I would take her to 10Ks, I would take her to these, these marathons, these things that she was doing. And I would basically be her support person. But I was always standing out there watching. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, high five as she ran by, you know, make sure she had the water, whatever she needed while she was while she was doing this. But um, but now I decided that it was going to be my turn and that I was going to I was going to start running. And so I said another New Year's resolution. And the only thing it said was start exercising. <laughs> and and I did. Um, we had. You know she when we moved into our house, she really wanted a nice treadmill, um especially when we were having kids, and she knew that she wouldn't be out on the road as much as she had been you know before we had kids. She wanted to get a nice treadmill, and when we bought the treadmill, I said, "Well, let's get one that's big enough to you know strong enough for me, so we ended up with a commercial treadmill, I think we spent four thousand dollars on it or, or something at the time, but we did have a treadmill in the house that was good enough for me to to run on so it was the winter time here, you know, the roads get icy, we don't have sidewalks. So I just started on the treadmill. And what I would do is I would, I would go for a half hour and I would just walk. And then I would just bump up the speed until I was running. And then when I got exhausted out of breath, I would just slow it down and then I would walk. And I know I couldn't even run a quarter of a mile. Um, when I first started with the, with the running intervals, I guess now I know that they would be called and, and, um, And then I would walk it out until I got to the point where I could, you know, run a full quarter mile. You know, the treadmill has this display that looks like a lap on a track. So Mm -hmm. I would try to see if I could get the lights all the way around. And I remember I could get it to go one lap. And I thought that was awesome. And then I could get it to go two laps. And then I finally got to the point where I could go four laps and I could run a full mile. And uh, I just kept going and, and doing more and more running and less walking. And I probably extended the time. I didn't always jump off at 30 minutes. It would depend. You know, I, I just kept going. But even while I started doing all this exercising, I was still eating right. And I was staying perfectly on track. And I was still losing almost exactly eight pounds a month. Um, as I was increasing this exercise and just eating the way that I now knew that I should. And then in March of that year, I ran my first 5K race. And this was the first time I put a number on myself since maybe like, um, you know, recreational basketball and like the, I don't know, third grade or, or something like that. So, um, but that was cool because now I wasn't on the sidelines. Like now I understood what this buzz was. You know, people were running to the bathrooms, the porta Johns to go to the bathroom. They were running over here, having a sip of water. They were going and getting their bids and their pins and they were putting stuff on their, you know, putting this number on their shirt and then going and dropping something off in the car and I felt like I was part of this kind of really cool buzz and this kind of dance that was going on. And that was enough really to get me super hooked. I was like, this is pretty cool. And I'm doing it. And then I ran that first 5K race in like 27 minutes. And I had no idea if that was good or if that was terrible or what. But uh, it felt it felt pretty cool. And some friends of mine who um, who I had known from – kind of the running world, they're like, that's actually a really good time for someone who's just, you know, three months ago couldn't even run uh, a quarter mile around a around a track. So that was another one that was just a big confidence booster for me that just did nothing for me other than just tell me that I was going to continue, that I just had to keep it going.
0: And your so your impetus to starting the exercise was... You just wanted to not be an observer, but be a participant? Or did you think it was going to double your weight loss to 16 a month? Or, or you I just had a bunch of energy?
1: Exactly. I think it was that one. I just really felt good. I had the energy. And for the first time in my life, I thought that it was something that I could do successfully. Like, maybe I could do this with my wife. And, you know, I'm thinking about what kind of father I'm going to be as I'm going through all of this. And I wanted to be an active part of these kids' lives. And I thought that being able to exercise and really being in shape, not just being um, of a normal weight, but really being healthy. I still, to this day, I really believe that exercise is incredibly important for being healthy, but I think it has almost nothing to do with losing weight. So, at the time, I just wanted to, I mean, I want it was about more than even weight loss at the time. I'm like, I wanted to be truly healthy. I almost wanted to, like, become an athlete.
0: So, Am I seeing behind you like a a whole bunch of ribbons and medals and things?
1: Yeah, but that's because I'm in my wife's office. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she's our real she's a real real runner. She's the only <laughs> one who has her own space in the house that's that's quiet and away from everyone. But I mean, so she's qualified for and ran Boston for uh, I think four times. She's got like a um a 50k, a couple of ultras and some like some real trophies from um, you know, overall finishes as a, a female and things like that. I have a couple myself, but they're like downstairs in the back of a, a okay. cabinet somewhere.
0: <laughs> so did she get excited? I mean, we haven't talked about her much, much at all, but I know like when I do something and then my family isn't doing it. And then if, if one of them shows the slightest sign of interest, like, you know, I'll go, go I'll go get them the cleats. I like, I'm so excited that I almost turn them off. Did, did you? Yeah. Like, did yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's me. That's not her. (laughs) So, because remember, she's running all this time and, um, and she's just happy to have me shuffle her around wherever she needs to go. She never tried to get me to become a part of it. And, you know, even when I wasn't drinking, she never, she never said, why don't you have a drink? Why don't you have a beer with me or anything like that? She was like, oh, you'll drive me wherever I want to go. I don't have to, I've got my own designated driver. So (laughs) we've, we've always been a little independent like that. It was never that, you know, she wanted, um, me to do what she was doing I do have more of that and I see that a lot with my kids now you know anything that excites me I'm like trying to get people to you know trying to get my wife and kids to do that with me but uh she really didn't have any of that but she was fine with it she was happy she was happy to support me I would that's how I would most describe her she's just incredibly supportive so when I was overweight and when I was bummed out and I was denied that life insurance policy, you know, she would try to comfort me. She'd try to make me feel better. She would tell me it's okay that, um, you know, she was even probably more defensive of me than, than, than I was of myself, you know, as far as, oh, you know, don't let it bother you. It's okay. We'll figure it out. You know, more of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and we've talked about it since, you know, maybe almost to, to a fault. You know, like almost borderlining, maybe enabling, because if she always said, you know, oh, you know, if she will always tell me, you know, I love you just the way you are, then like that's not really any big reason for me to change either. I'm like, oh, I'm love the way I am. Like,
0: cool. Yeah. 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 So, um, if you haven't experienced the other, though. No, no, I
1: have not. So I'm happy for that, too. <laughs> I'm getting you maybe know, you have. I don't know. <laughs>
0: Well, you know,
1: yeah.
0: experienced uh, conditional approval, yeah like that yeah, can, yeah. that can take you so far, but it's not going to take you nearly as far as self love
1: yeah 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 I, I, would, I, agree. I could see that, and I would agree with that for sure yeah. so, so, so so I started running, and i 'll speed through the rest, and then I would like to talk about a lot of the stuff I'm doing now so so I continued just running more. And I just kept running further, and I kept losing the weight. And by September of 2007, so 20 months, I lost a total of 160 pounds. My waist went from a size 54 to a size, depending on the pants, 36 to 34. Um, I was completely off all my medicine. And then at that point, I ran my first half marathon, which was the Philadelphia distance run. And I ran that in an hour and 47 minutes. So just nine months after I couldn't even do that, you know, that one lap around that um, track or that virtual track on the treadmill. Um, and I really, I say that not because I'm, I'm fast. The truth is I'm probably not even that fast today. Um, you know, even though I've still been running steadily ever since, you know, it, it goes back and forth. But um, I really do think that that's the power of the way I was eating. I think my body was just so functioning so well. And I think it was happy to get, you know, be rid of this weight and stuff like that, that I was just able to really excel and to really perform in a way that was very impressive to me.
0: Hmm. That's great. And then what, what, what other, uh, tell me a, l- a little bit more about your, your racing career.
1: So my racing career. So, so I ran that half marathon, the Philadelphia distance run. And, uh, and how I got into that was I said, I asked my wife, because she's the experienced runner, I said, Hey, do you think I can run a half marathon? And at the time, my longest run was maybe 10 miles. And she goes, probably. And she says, why don't you go out and see if you can run 11 or 12 miles. And if you can, then you should be, you should be fine. So Mm -hmm. I went out, and I ran, I think, 11 and a half miles. And I came back, And I was fine. I wasn't dragging. You know, I maintained a very steady pace the entire time. And she goes, yeah, no problem. So I signed up that day. And then the race was the following weekend. And is in Philadelphia, which I know that you know this. is about an hour and 15 minutes drive south of here. So um, I registered. And I was picking up my stuff in the morning. But no one else was going with me. So not only was I not on the sidelines. But I didn't even have anyone on the sidelines for me. You know, I drove myself down there. I found a parking garage in the city. And um, I went and picked up my stuff. And then I went into the corral. It was a huge race. I forget how many people were running. But they had all these corrals for the staggered start. And I just put my times in there for like a, a, maybe a 10K time or my training pace or something. And they put me in this corral. And I looked. And I was maybe in the second or third corral from the front. But then I turned around and I looked behind me and there was like this sea of people. And I was like, what am I doing all the way up here? <laughs> you know, I was like, and, and I ran that, you know, I ran that race again, just like I did that 11 mile training run, you know, very steady, very even, um, even pace for the entire race. I finished. I felt good. I went and got like a, you know, banana or water or whatever. And then I went and found my car and I just drove myself home. And it was almost like it, it wasn't, it wasn't that like crazy of a thing to do. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So, so then I, I ran a few other half marathons since then I actually cut my time a little bit. You know, I, there was a one point where I wanted to um, get a little bit faster at that. I trained for the Chicago marathon. Um, I forget even what year, but with logistics and with the family and I ended up not running it, but um. I was a little bit bummed out about that because I did all the training runs, like including like a 22 miler at like a, a steady nine minute pace, which now I know would have set me up to do really well in, in the marathon, but I, but I'd never did it. I ne- I didn't run the Chicago marathon, but then since then, I have ran the New York marathon once. And during my whole training, you know, my plan from day one was it's one and done. You know, I never, I never planned to get addicted to marathoning, um, mostly because I just have so much that I love to do. You know, I do love to skateboard. I, I race off-road motorcycles. I, um, I love spending time with my kids and anything I can do. Like I would rather go run. They were even younger at the time that I was training for the marathon. I ran New York city in 2015, but, um, I would rather go out and run 11 minute miles with them than go do a training run for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, at, at a pace, you know, to set myself up to do well at, at a marathon. So it just was my priorities. But I did think that I, I did want to do one. Um, my wife said that she was going to put in for the lottery. So I just told her, I said, put me in too. And it turns out I got in and she didn't. So so I was committed enough and, and I ran that. And it was an amazing experience. Like it, it was great. Um, I did not hit my time. I was trying to go for four hours and I think I finished in 4.17. Um, I... That was one race I did kind of fall apart and I realized that marathoning is not, is not the same, you know, there's everything comes into play. You know, what you've eaten for the past three days, you know, how well your morning was, what time you woke up, how you sleep, like, like that's, it's really an achievement. I I give everyone a ton of credit who goes out and does, does wealthy.
0: You You don't drive yourself home after a marathon. No,
1: no, you don't. And, and just like. So your nutrition in the morning, you know, whatever you're eating to fuel up in the morning and then what you're eating while you're racing and how you're drinking, like it's, it's just a whole different game you can't, like, I feel like I can go run a half marathon with just, you know, a few cups of water and I'm just fine. But the the marathon does not work like that. Like it's a, it gets a lot of respect from me. So I did that. And then as you know, you know, the, the next, the biggest race that I've done since then was the Leadville uh, last year which was a trail race, which I did the heavy half, which was a, a little under 16 miles, I think. But, um, but it was that huge elevation. And I really think that I could um, get into trail running, because what I liked the most about it is that there were a lot of parts where, you know, just quite frankly, I couldn't run. It was either too steep, or it was too rocky, or there were too many people, or the trail was too narrow. So it forced me to go for a brisk walk, but then what that did was then whenever I got to a spot that I could run, you know I got to kind of open it up a little bit and and actually run and and uh, at Leadville at least you don't run too far before you get to another spot where you have to you know do a do a pretty quick walk so I really right. enjoyed i learned to really enjoy that varied pace, and that was on the uphill and then coming down was the same. there were some spots where you really couldn't run because it was just too rough, but then the spots where you could run coming down from the peak, like it was downhill running. I'm like, downhill running is pretty cool. (laughs) Like, you know, I essentially feel like I fell for about an hour and a half um, from the, from that peak at, you know, pretty close to 14,000 feet back down to 10,000 feet. um, When we got back down to the finish line. Um, So I, my, my racing that I do for myself is um, I just will do races with the family well, if we go out and do it? Um, my son j- did just tell me that he wants to do the Lesville Heavy Half next year. And I would love to train f- for that and do that with him. But um, other than that, I don't really have any what I would kind of call my races, you know, on the, on the mm-hmm. schedule. Like things that I'm just working for and training towards.
0: Okay. So, well, we have a few minutes left. I want to make sure we get to what, what you're up to now. I think yeah. you know, it's, it, we can see sort of how your story plays into the way you approach helping people. It's just, yeah. what, what What do you want to talk about? I mean, you do, you do so much stuff. You do kind of, you know, marketing, the, the lifestyle and coaching people. What What would you like to get into? Yeah.
1: So, so I guess, I guess, you know, one of my favorite things I'm doing now is this, um, I'm writing these articles and then I'm having discussions with Dr. Lori Marbus on mindset, because I think so much of this change and I've learned so much is what happens in our own heads. Um, it's the things that we tell ourselves, you know, our, our, self-talk it's finding these really strong whys so that even if it's not easy, we can still push ourselves through to do what we know is, is, is right. So it's really kind of the, I don't know if it's, um, human behavior or behavior change or lifestyle change or, or what we would call it. But, um, that's, I feel like that that's such an important piece. And I feel like it's not a piece that everyone is really, at least publicly working on very much. Um, We learn a ton about the science of, of, of what, why we eat this way. And it's fascinating to me, you know, I read all of those books, and they're, they're, they're incredibly interesting. And what they do for me personally, the most valuable thing they do for me, is they let me know that, Um, I'm confident in my decisions and what I've chose to do, but they don't necessarily help me to make a change. So I do some I do some small classes here, like some 10 week sessions locally. I get to share my story. And my favorite way to share my story is like kind of what we're doing now. You know, we talked a lot about my story, probably more than more than I would have um, if I was designing this now I talk about, okay, how can other people implement this change? Like how can we take elements, like things that I've analyzed of, of what would make me able to be successful this time and to keep my weight like right on track like steady as can be now for 10 years after. Um, and how can people put that into their own life? And I feel like the biggest thing that we're teaching people now is that it's okay to be different. You know, it's okay to take care of yourself and not to worry about what anyone around you is doing, whether that's family or friends or people, you know, people who care about you or people who ask you these questions that make you doubt yourself. Like we, like learning how to just stand on our own and be confident in our own decisions. I think that's almost like a first step that people have to kind of acknowledge that they can do before they can really do this at least in today's society. Right.
0: So when you share your story with people, do you find that they resonate with it? Or do they look at you and say, well, you're an outlier. I could never do that. Or or are there parts of the story that people see themselves in?
1: Yeah, there are parts of the story that people see themselves in. Um, Really, whenever if I'm sharing my story to a room full of people, you know, whether it's 10 people or whether whether it's, uh, you know, 100 people, I'm really looking for the biggest people in the room. Because I do feel like my story uh, applies to people who need to make um, who need to lose a lot of weight or people who have very serious issues and people who need to basically acknowledge the fact that they are doing everything wrong, that they, they don't know. Like I need I need to be able to like it's I feel like it's easier to convince people when I say, look, look. Everything you've done is wrong because it's led you to this point now where you need to change everything. So let's just erase everything that you think you know. Let's retrain yourself, retrain your brain, and let's say, okay, this is what you have to do, and then you're going to come out on the other side. I do find it difficult for myself like to help someone who needs to lose you know, 20 or 30 or, or, or something pounds because mm-hmm. I, it's, I don't feel like it's the same kind of task. And I feel like that that's a little bit unfortunate now, You know, some people can still do it and grasp onto it, but somebody who needs to lose 20 pounds is a little hesitant to say you need to change everything that you're doing in your life.
0: Right. So when you, when you work with folks who are a hundred more pounds overweight, sort of your, you know, your level yeah. of, of need, um, do you find that they have a big why that they just need to spend time sort of excavating and cultivating or, are you know? Does your big why kind of, tr- you know, sort of trigger in them? A- yeah,
1: I I think everyone needs to. They need to find it. The thing is, is we can make our situations seem as um, as terrible or as I guess or as light as we want them to be you know i could have shrugged off that insurance company say oh i'm going to go try another insurance company because you know these people don't know what they're doing right or they they don't really understand me or i could have went back to my doctor and said hey can you take off this sleep apnea stuff or like you know can you just close the loop on this and just say you know anthony's not doesn't need this right i could have i could have tried to discount the severity of being denied a 20 year term life insurance policy or i could have Look, lot right. What I did was I looked at it as a 20 year death sentence and something that was not acceptable for me in my life. So that's what I try to do is help people to twist the way their perspective. So, what's good about your life today? Okay. And how is that going to be better? And then, what sucks about your life today? You know, what are the things that you really want to change? And let's make those as bad as possible so that you really do almost have like these magnetic poles where. The person is in the middle and the future just looks so amazingly bright and the past looks so like gloomy and terrible or or the current state looks so terrible that they really want to do whatever it takes to get away from that and to get towards this. And I do that with people with affirmations and also with like, you know, so things that they're working towards and, um, Try to help them to see, like, let's just paint this really great picture and let's remind yourself all the time how amazing things are going to be. And let's paint this really gloomy picture over here and let's just remind yourself how you're not going to go back there, that you're not going to have that. So really trying to help them in their own terms to find a why that is strong enough to push them through the tough times.
0: Gotcha. So one thing that I find is a little bit of a double-edged sword is when when people discover this big why – and they're yeah. so committed to it. And they understand, I, I don't want to just live for, for under 20 years. I want to be there for my kids. And then they screw up. And they eat yeah. the Ben and Jerry's. People can, can really sort of, you know, screw with their own heads. Like, what does this mean? That I know yeah. I have this big why and I'm still a screw up. What, how do you help people through that?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I just try to tell them that it doesn't mean that you're off the wagon. I look at a whole food plant-based diet as a very inclusive thing. And this is something I do with people very early on. I you know, I work with them and I say, okay, what is a whole food plant-based diet? And the first thing people will tell you is everything it's not, right? It's no meat. It's no fish. It's no cheese. It's no processed food. It's da, 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 da. like this whole list of things. And I try to skew that. I mean, to me, that's what a vegetarian diet is. That's what a vegan diet is. Like, Vegetarian and vegan tell people what they do not eat. It leaves a whole world of stuff that is included and that, that you can eat. Now, I look at a whole food plant-based diet as the opposite. I say, okay, this is a whole food plant-based diet. What that means is you do eat a lot of vegetables. You eat a lot of fruit. You eat a lot of beans. You know, you eat some nuts and seeds. You eat this. And that is what, that's what you, the majority of your diet is. And then I leave a little bit of fringe so that if somebody does have something with, like myself, I won't even have maple sugar. But I know there are a lot of recipes out there that, that are pretty spot on, except for the fact that they're sweetened with a little bit of maple sugar. So someone may choose to you know, have one of those. Somebody else might choose to have you know a, a, piece, a, a small piece of meat once in a while, or, or once a month, they're gonna have something like that. But what I tell them is, just because you've done this, it doesn't mean that you've broken the rules on what is a whole foods plant-based diet, right? Mm -hmm. You found your fringe, you found your trim, but, and that's, you want to avoid that as much as possible, but you're still on track and just telling them that, because I don't want to bring back exactly what you described, those feelings of failure. And, and I even had to do this with my kids because they go to a birthday party and at a young age, they wanted to be vegan. And because we watched this Rip Esselstyn TED talk and talk about slaying, you know, slaying this five-headed dragon. And my kids, were they were writing vegan in Chalk on the driveway. And then they went to camp and they served pancakes. And they didn't know how to ask if there was anything that was not vegan in the pancakes. You know, they didn't know just to ask for, they don't know what's in pancakes. So they didn't know if they should ask if there was milk or if there was eggs in there or something. So it actually created stress for them. So then I actually showed them one of Joel Furman's. Videos and it says what is a nutritarian diet? A nutritarian diet is where you eat almost exclusively, but it's key in there. It's almost exclusively, you know, vegetables, fruits, beans, nuts, and seeds. And if a little bit of something else sneaks in there, so now, like, I kind of lowered that expectation that my kids have for themselves, or that people who I'm working with have for themselves, to say, okay, so if something like this slips in, or if I accidentally eat something like this, that it hasn't knocked me off my plan. It's a reality check. Like I need to make, I need to understand why I did that and try not to do it again, but it doesn't mean failure and it doesn't bring on those feelings.
0: Yeah. And that, and that requires more self awareness and honesty, right? If you're just on yeah. the plan and you know exactly what the plan is, that kind of you know, like, okay, I'm on Furman's plan or I'm on Esselstyn's plan. But if you're on your own plan you kind of have to raise your game and be real with yourself like, yeah. Oh yeah, I can have meat so often. And it turns into, you know, moderation means once a day or something like right,
1: that. Right. And and you're off the plan. And that's the one thing I have. I mean, I love almost everything about Joel Furman because of his evidence-based approach. And I really do think he has a science right, but I, in terms of where he would say he would allow someone to have 10% of their calories from, from meat, for example, yeah. It, in a given day or a dish or something like that. No one in this world can realistically conceptualize what that is. I mean, if a pound of salad is 100 calories or even a little bit less than 100 calories, that means that we can have 10 calories from meat. And I don't know how big that piece of meat is, but I would guess it's probably not much more than the size of a quarter or or something like that, right? It's so minuscule, yet people will think that that means that they can have a hamburger as long as they have a big salad with it. And mm-hmm. like it couldn't be further from the, from the truth, and those people are—it's almost sad for me to see those people because what they're doing is they're putting in so much effort, and they're not—they're not changing enough to actually get any results. So those are the people who are going to go back and say, "Oh, whole food plant-based diet doesn't work," or you know, not even if they're eating—you know, not even if they're eating um, meat, but even if they're having too much bread, or if they're, um, you know, wh- whatever it is, if they're kind of on those fringe lines, people, they think that they've made enough change, but maybe they're having too much oil, they're allowing too much oil to sneak in, they're allowing too much bread or white flour or something. And they're not getting the results like I was getting or or that they should be getting for themselves. Yet they've made a major life change. And those are those are the people who if you don't help, if I don't help them, or I don't correct them and get them on course, then those are the ones who are going to fall off yeah, I guess that's how, that's how I approach it and try to deal with those feelings of of failure. I try to just stress the fact that this is inclusive. You know, we're focused on what you do eat. Um, We're not, we're not focused on setting these hard rules about what you don't eat.
0: Gotcha. So for folks who want to find out more about what you do, do you work with people like locally or virtually? Is it, is this like a a career thing for you? Or uh,
1: I would love for it to become one day right now. It's a passion project. So so I am about um, I have done some local sessions here in New Jersey, and I've been working with Ron Weiss um, of ethos Health and his website is my ethos health so I've been coaching a number of his um, his patients and his clients who sign up to do more i mean i don't do any of the medical stuff he takes care of all the medical, but I help with the lifestyle um, portions of that and then I am starting to just do more on my own so I have a Independently. So I have a website. It's called Veggies for Dinner. What it really is today is just a blog with recipes that are um, very compliant, you know, 99 or so percent compliant. Even recipes that have had sweeteners and things like that, you know, we've modified them and tweaked them to say anything on here is going to keep you on track. So, so that's what that's about that's now. But it's and a that, place for so people make to make sure find people me. can hear.
0: That's veggiesfordinner.com.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Okay. And I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes.
1: Okay. Thanks. And then I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook and I've been lucky. I get to do some speaking and I love doing that because I feel like I can really kind of reach um, a broad audience uh, in one time that way. So, so I've been doing more of that and I would love to continue doing more uh, of those kinds of things.
0: Gotcha. Well, so uh, if if people want to just follow you, they can, they can just bookmark veggies for dinner. And as you, as you turn your passion project into a uh, a career, people can reach out to you for more and more.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I'm on Facebook as Anthony Massiello, or on Instagram as Anthony Massiello or A Massiello as well.
0: So, okay, cool. Yeah. So people can look you up there, Anthony. Thank you so much. It's such an inspiring story. First of all, you know the the journey, and then how much you've normalized the the post part of the journey that you're just <laughs> you know. You, you know, sort of just just a giant vertically now.
1: Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a nice way to put it. Thank you, Howard.
0: <laughs> and, uh, and just, you know, there's so much sort of ease and common sense and a kind of a relaxation to your approach that I think can uh, can can really help people who are struggling.
1: I really hope so. I I I. I really hope it helps people and I would love to, you know, if I can share my story and if it can get to, you know, one or two or three people at a time and really help them to make a change because I, I believe it's unfortunate. I don't think people really know how good they can feel. And that's the thing that I love about meeting people like yourself who are already plant-based. I mean, when we get together, you know, you and I knew each other uh, just, you know, in passing on the internet and then when we, I meet you and we have conversations in Leffo, like, you know, I feel like everyone's on this different wavelength. And it's just so, it's so amazing to be around people who have taken control of their lives and have really been doing this and living this. And I, I do believe that if more people experience that for themselves, that, that basically everyone will just be a little bit happier than they are now. So I hope it helps. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, the, we'll, well, the door's open and we'll keep holding it open for people.
1: Exactly. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's a good way to put it.
0: Uh, Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, be well. Thank you, Howard. You too. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes so that we can get the word out. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com and be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 240. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 239 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not my weekly-ish email newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can also get that at plantyourself.com. In addition to that iTunes review, you can also support the show by sharing episodes on social media and by becoming a patron, by pledging a monthly amount through patreon.com to help defray my costs and... To make it possible for me to spend more time to get higher quality interviews out through uh, more research, through uh, more preparation, through better equipment, through being able to market and grow the show so that I'm interesting to more and more people who um, who look at statistics, who look at how many people download and listen to the show before deciding whether to take the time. So if you'd like to be part of this happy family, and of course, get your name mentioned or mangled at the end of every episode, you can go to patreon.com, search for Plant Yourself, and even a dollar a month gives you access to all of my healthy habit huddles. So that's just a little teeny little incentive slash bribe to get you to support the show and to be part of the team. In garden news, we had a surprise frost last night. Uh, I haven't taken a look to see what the damage is. The kale looked good. I'm not sure if anything else did particularly well. And in running news, I've decided to make um, 830 or 845 miles my new easy normal instead of in the nines, depending on the uh, elevation of the terrain. So I'm starting to push myself again, and I think I am going to do the Baton Rouge Louisiana Marathon on January. I think it's the 14th, 2018. Um, not definite, but if you're thinking of signing up, drop me a line, and we will uh, say hello and maybe even run together. Quick shout out to my friend and mentor, uh, Glenn Murphy, who is my uh, martial arts instructor, Sistema, a Russian form And Glenn has launched his own podcast called Systema for Life. Systema is spelled like system, S-Y-S-T-E-M with an A at the end. Systema for Life is the podcast. And he alternates between interviews with great Systema teachers and practitioners and general musings. And for me, it's been one of the most valuable inputs in my life. And so I love sharing it with other people. And this week, uh, Glenn released an episode in which he and I discuss the practice of pouring a five-gallon bucket of freezing cold water over our heads and bodies every single morning. And, yeah, it's as good as it sounds. And believe me, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't find tremendous value, both uh, physically, psychologically, and even spiritually in the practice. So if you want to go check that out, Systema for Life, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. So it's the episode that was published today, November seventeenth, 2018, and give it a listen. I think you'll really like it. Time for the thanks. First, of course, thanks to our musical muse, Will Ridenour, for Sabali Done, The Dance of Peace, the theme music for this show. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. <laughs> Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barron, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Konofsky, David Bysak, the Mysterious Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Victoria Dolman, Ovalia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne, Roland, Stu Dolmick, Sarah Durkis, Ron, Circus Kelly, Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila, Sarah Tadip, David, Donna Hugh Blair, Cybert, Doro, Navizov, Gio, and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rose, Michael Warabek... <laughs> The Equally Mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes Val, Lineman DeCarper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Ruth Ju- Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Sharon, Sharon, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Yusuf Touzinwa, Connie Heinlein, and the Erin Green for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. And as always, be well, my friends.